And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Barack Obama when he returned to Chicago from law school in the early 90s to run a voter registration drive. Uh, And while I didn't realize at that moment uh, where history would take him, uh, I was taken by him as someone who really cared about public service, uh, was committed to devoting his life to it. Uh, And uh, together we had an incredible journey. Now as the new year approaches, the days are ticking down on the Obama administration. And so I went by the White House uh, to sit down with my old friend and reflect on the road he's traveled. So, Mr. President, I actually came over to help you pack, but I really appreciate you dropping by. This is a great surprise to be able to sit down with you. You know, I was over at the Kennedy Center um, the other night uh, for the Kennedy Center Awards, and when you walked in, there was this thunderous and lengthy ovation and lots of tears. Um, And you know me, so you know that I was among those who who was tearing up. And I was, but then I was thinking, what are you thinking? And has is it beginning to hit you that this is coming to an end? Well, uh, let me make a couple uh, points. Number one, uh, you're the last guy I would have helped me pack. Because uh, <laughs> let's face it, you know, orderliness is 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 not. I'd also be uh, the last guy to offer to help. So, yeah. so that's point number one. Point number two: they were applauding Michelle's dress, which was spectacular, <laughs> even by her okay. own standards. You're not going to get away with yeah. that. Uh, I, I tell you, um, what has started to hit me is uh, that the collection of unbelievable talent and. Uh, vision and dedication in my team, the people I've gathered around, uh, some of whom have been with me for this entire ride, some of whom I got to know later, uh, many of whom sort of came of age in this job. So I've I've seen them start in these really junior jobs, and now they're running huge operations and married and yeah. uh, their babies are you know, crawling on the floor of the, the Oval Office. Right. It's a family. All named Barack. <laughs> so far, nobody's named uh, their kid Barack. <laughs> I've been a little upset about that. But um, knowing that that uh, phase is coming to an end, I, they'll, they'll stay my friends for life. Uh, some of them I'll collaborate with, like you, on various things uh, in the future. But uh, to have them all in one place, to see how well they've worked together and, and gelled, uh, it has been just an enormous privilege. And so uh, I have been getting more sentimental about that. Uh, you know, we had our senior staff dinner, you remember these. Yes. And uh, I got through. I, I heard you got a little verklempt. Yeah, I, I, I got through about four minutes of the thing <laughs> and then started, you know, getting the hanky out. Uh, and, uh, Which you don't really do that much. I, I, it's, it's you used in, to mock me for doing well, it. Well, it's interesting. There, there are two uh, things that can get me teary. One is talking about my daughters yes. or seeing my daughters. Yes. Uh, and the second is 
my team. I mean, you remember after 2012 when I went over to the campaign office and I saw all those kids who had been working so yeah. hard. And it was the same kind of emotion that stirs up uh, this deep gratitude for their devotion and I think an appreciation that even though from their perspective I'm the one inspiring them, in fact, all I'm doing is uh, drawing f- from their energy. They're the ones inspiring me. I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting back what's inside of them, which is just a lot of goodness and a lot of uh, heart and uh, idealism. And, and so, well, so that, the, that, that if, gets me If they up. were here, what they would tell you is um, right back at you because you're the one who, I mean, everything has been organized around your, your energy and your sensibilities. And, you know, we talked about this when, you, when we talked about you running for president in 2006 and seven, And I said to you, we haven't had a campaign that really... Um, spoke to the ideals of young people uh, and aspirations for the future since Robert Kennedy. And that campaign stirred people uh, in a way that uh, very few haven't. And we did that. You did that. And, you know, only you could have done it. And so... Well, look, the point is, it feels like, uh, you know, the band is breaking up a little bit. And it really has been a team effort. It's, it's been a really big band, a full orchestra, yes. horn section and all that. Um, and one of the things that I tell people I appreciate is that, that spark, that thing that we uh, took a flyer on in 2007, 2008, uh, you know, it didn't always... Uh, manifest itself in the day-to-day grind of governing but the truth is it's it it, it never died out and uh, I, I would continue to see it every day in what happened here in the West Wing and the East Wing and the White House um, the the idealism and the dedication uh, stayed with the staff and and got us through some really hard times and so uh, I do take a lot of pride in the fact that overall, this place never got cynical over the eight years. There were times where we were aggravated. There were times where we were frustrated. Uh, there was gallows humor. But we, we never had that fire snuffed out. And... Uh, that is a point of pride for me because what that tells me is there's a whole generation of people who worked in this administration who are going to keep on yeah. doing stuff in the future. I don't think they come away from this feeling like, oh, government service doesn't work. Well, politics is, is terrible. The result of the election actually has stirred what I think is an encouraging reaction, which is, you know, this stuff matters. Right. We can't walk away we can't walk away from it. Let, let me take you back, because what I was thinking about last night as I was thinking about this conversation right. was how remarkable your personal journey has been. I, I, I sort of got to jump on the train, and, right. and we, we, we had this trip together. But, you know, when I think back to—I always love that story about 
after you lost your congressional race by, what, the narrow margin of 30 points or something. Uh, that, was a, that was a nail biter. <laughs> but you... Uh, I think it was literally called, like, two minutes after the polls closed. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good. You didn't have to waste the whole evening. No, but I had to rush to get to the uh, hotel <laughs> to concede. I thought I was going to have half an hour or something. <laughs> I had to but, 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 put my but tie on. Tell the story about going to L.A. for the... Democratic convention and trying to rent a car. Yeah, no, th- this is this was sixteen years ago. Yeah, this was sixteen years ago. So, so I I just got thumped in a congressional race, and uh, the truth is that it, it was a great experience for me. It it ended up being a building block for yeah. subsequent races. It taught me a lot, but look. Losing's never fun. The, the, the one thing I always explain to people is, although I, I've, I'm proud that uh, I have tried to conduct myself in office to uh, do what I think is right uh, rather than what is popular, uh, I always tell people, don't underestimate the public humiliation of losing <laughs> in politics. It, it's unlike what most people experience as adults. Uh, this sense of rejection. Yeah. And so you're already a little uh, mopey about things. And as you know, David, because we're close friends, uh, you know, Michelle was never that wild about me going into politics. Right. I've, got, I've got two little kids. Uh, we're pretty broke, uh, or at least at that point, we had, I had one little kid and one on the way. And uh, a friend of mine says... Look, yeah, you got to get back on the horse. You're you're, you're kind of down in the dumps. Why don't you go to the Democratic National Convention in L.A.? It'll cheer you up. You know, you'll be among folks who are t- excited about politics, and uh, you can uh, you can stay with me. And I, I said, okay, you know, I'll go for the weekend. Uh, I fly out there uh, on, you know, whatever um, connecting flight that was the cheapest. <laughs> Uh, and get uh, to the rent-a-car place and present my credit card, and the credit card's rejected. No more money. <laughs> so it's, so aftermath of the campaign. Right. Huh? I, I, so I have to, uh, I think, make a couple of calls to engineers somehow renting this car, and uh, I get to the hotel, uh, hotel where my friend uh, uh, is ready to go and we go over the convention and they give me the pass that is uh, basically only allows you to be in the halls <laughs> like the, <laughs> the the ring around the auditorium didn't actually allow you to see anything but you could uh wander around and uh this four years before you get the is, keynote yes speech. and and uh, uh i think you know they they my friend would try to get me into some of the after parties after the convention and <laughs> bouncers would be standing there saying, who's this guy? And he doesn't have the right so credentials. So this probably didn't have the, the cheering up effect. It didn't. And, no. uh, I, I felt as if, uh, you know, I was uh, a third wheel in this whole thing. So I ended up leaving early. Uh, and At least you sat really, on the car. <laughs> and, and I... Uh, 
And and that was a stage when I was really questioning uh, whether I should continue in politics. Yeah, um, I was going to mention that because I remember when yeah. you called me in 2002 right. to say you were thinking of running for the Senate, and you said, uh, you know, I've talked to Michelle about this. I've got one race left in me. If I don't win it, uh, then I'm going to go out and make a living and forget about this. So that's how close you came to being out of politics. Yeah, no, it, it was... Uh, it was it was an interesting moment, um, and you know since this is your podcast, I might as well give you a little credit. I think in our conversation, you were initially and sensibly skeptical about uh, a black guy named Barack Hussein named Obama Bar- getting elected <laughs> senator. Yeah, I was. Yes, but you overcame your skepticism, uh, and uh, and and I saw a possible path. The one thing that the congressional race had done is confirm in my mind two things. Number one, uh, even though in a predominantly black district I'd uh, been beaten badly by a well-established African-American politician, it was interesting when I went out campaigning, uh, people were actually pretty encouraging. What they'd say is, you seem like a great young man uh, and you're going to do great things. It's just it's not your turn yet. So what they told me was actually that I had strong support in the African-American community, just not in this particular race. And the second thing, as you'll recall in that congressional race, there was a chunk of the city, uh, of the congressional district, uh, Beverly, Morgan Park, where there was a a sizable uh, uh, Irish population. Mm -hmm. And I did really well there, and I connected well. And... It told me that uh, in a big field in the the U.S. Senate race that I might have a chance to win. So, but but it, it is. Uh, if you had won that congressional race, we wouldn't be sitting no, in the wouldn't. Roosevelt Room so right now. So things things work out. But yeah. but but I, I do always think about the fact that uh, in the 2000 convention, I couldn't basically get in the hall. I, or I, I couldn't get into the uh, on the floor, uh, and nobody knew my name. Four years later, I'm pro- doing the uh, keynote speech, and it wasn't as if I was so much smarter four years later than I had been in 2000. It speaks a little bit to the randomness of politics, and uh, you know, part of the reasons that I think I've stayed sane in what has been this remarkable journey. Uh, and, and you've known me a long time, and, and I think you'd confirm that I'm pretty much the same guy as I was when we started this thing. Part of the reason a grayer, for but yeah. part of the reason a little grayer, yes. But part of the reason for that, I think, is because um, you know success came late to me, uh, notoriety came late, and uh, it it made me realize that uh, to the extent that I had been successful. It wasn't about me. It, it was about certain forces out there, uh, uh, a, and and me hitching my wagon to uh, a, a broader spirit and a broader set of trends uh, and a broader set of traditions. And so when when we came up with the phrase "Yes, we can," uh, which again, to give you credit, I was a little skeptical of. It felt a little simplistic when we first started. Um, 
But you didn't like the logo either, but at, that's, and the logo, that's a different discussion. The logo I thought was a loser. It looked like a, the Pepsi logo. That's what you said. It seems a little That's what you said. It, it became more iconic than the Apple exactly. insignia. So <laughs> but, I'm glad we straightened this out. Uh, look, I can, I, I'm, I've I'm, gotten everything I want that, out of this podcast That's what I figured. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but what, yes, we can describe, and I really meant, was that this was not simply about me. That this was about us. Yes. And I think that was well understood. And that was what was so energizing about it. So I want to ask you, you talk about your sanity. Um, I want to know why you're not nuts. Okay. And this is the the reason. Most politicians, you talked about how hard losing is. Most politicians have some sort of wound, I find, especially at a higher level, that something happened in their childhood and they really need the approbation of the crowds and the affirmation that comes with being elected. I don't know if you remember this conversation I had with you when you were, when you came to my office, right? The, you got back from Hawaii, you're about to make the decision to run. You come in unannounced and we talked for a long time. And I told you, I'm not sure you're pathological enough to run for president. (laughs) And what I meant by that was I didn't think you had that sort of pathological need that so many people who run for president do. Uh, and I don't know why that is, because your dad abandoned you, basically, when you were two years old. And your mom, uh, I know she was very loving, but you were separated from her for long periods of mm-hmm. time. And if you were just looking at those facts, you'd say, yeah, this guy's going to be a real needy person. Yeah. Why, are you, why didn't you turn out that way? Look, you, know, you don't know. Uh, it's hard to get outside of yourself completely and evaluate all the factors that contribute to your character. Um, some of it is just temperament. Now that uh, we've been parents and you're a grandpa, uh, you start noticing there is an essence of each kid mm-hmm. that, uh, barring really severe trauma, expresses itself that's who they are and so there is something in me obviously that is pretty calm and generally pretty happy uh uh and and pretty buoyant um but uh, did you feel did did you feel i mean this is a weird question to ask because you're president of the united states but but did you feel loved as a kid even though you're and 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 why was it your grandparents uh, yeah my mom was uh she was eccentric in many ways. She was kind of a hippie, right? Yeah, yeah. But she always insisted on shaving her legs. Um, <laughs> but uh, she was uh, uh, she was somebody who uh, was was hungry for adventure and uh, skeptical of convention. But she loved the heck out of her kids, uh, and both. My sister and I... That's for, what your sister says, too. For I all, asked her this question. Yeah, for all the ups and downs of our, our lives, there was never a moment where I didn't feel as if uh, I was special, that I, that I was not just this uh, spectacular gift to the world. And that's what you want your moms yeah, and your of dads course. To, yeah. to, to give to your uh, to the so kids. So even even when you when she was overseas and you were with your grandparents, yeah. she communicated. It, that. Yeah, and 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 I never doubted uh, the her her love and commitment for for me. 
and she was so young when she had me. I mean, she, yeah. was, she was 18, right? So in some ways, by the time I was 12, 13, um, she's interacting with me almost like a friend as well as mm-hmm. a parent. Now, there were, and you guys also I, weathered a lot yeah, together. Yeah, and, and I didn't always necessarily handle that well. I'm, it's not sort of a, a recipe for ideal parenting, uh, but what I did learn was that uh, unconditional love makes up for an awful lot, and I got that from her. Now, a part of part of going back to the question about politics, though, um, uh, you never feared losing. I, I never. You fe- didn't like it. No. You didn't. You're competitive. I am. I've. 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 You know. You, you know. You know what it was, David, and I think has has remained true. Is it's not that I didn't fear losing. It's that. I feared more being dishonest or being a jerk or losing respect for myself. I feared that more than losing. Right? So subjugating so, those things that you thought were important in order to win. Exactly. I, the, you know, the, the, the story I tell about myself didn't allow me to say, oh, well, let's trim my sails here uh, for expediency. And, uh, you know, and and so at, at, at the end of the day, I think that um, part of sustaining my sanity through this thing was having gone through enough uh, growing up uh, and community organizing and not being in the spotlight and having had this weird 15 minutes of success uh, at Harvard uh, and yeah, being president, like of, law president review, of law review, but then going back into the state legislature where I'm uh, operating in obscurity, and and uh, those ups and downs meant that by the time I was elected to the Senate, and suddenly, as you pointed out at, at the convention, shot out of a, a cannon uh, into you know this uh, unreal world. Um, by that time, I was pretty fully formed, had a pretty good sense of who I was, had a good sense of what was important and what wasn't. Uh, and look, you know, I was also married to a woman who was not going to put up with any foolishness. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Michelle, I, I, I can't underestimate the degree to which having a life partner who is so grounded and so strong and steady and fundamentally honest uh, helped. Sometimes brutally so. Sometimes brutally yeah. so, but but no, uh, but, I, I, but I, it it, it uh, she has she has been ballast for our family. Yeah, uh, and and I no doubt contributed to me feeling calm because uh, here's what I knew about Michelle, uh, the same way I knew about my girls. Uh, or my sister, or all, or my best friends, um, their relationships with me never depended on my success mm-hmm. or outward success. I, you know, they didn't. Uh, my best friends from high school don't operate any differently with me now than they did when. And I they're was, around a lot. You yeah. you have them here a lot. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. don't call you Mr. President. They do not. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, my, my, you know, I, I I've been lucky. Uh, it's interesting as you get older, you figure out some things you're good at and some things you're not. 
uh, you, you have hopefully a better self-assessment of yourself. And uh, one gift I do seem to have is uh, getting really, really good friends uh, around me who, who, uh, who've got my back. And, and that gives you a certain uh, serenity uh, in the midst of uh, a lot of foolishness. We, uh, you've rebuilt the American economy from when, we've, when we came here, and uh, as a result, I have to take a word from our sponsor here. <laughs> one, other el- one other element of your, I want to talk about uh, the 2004 speech, which to me is foundational for almost everything that came after. But uh, before I do, I just have one other question about your sort of makeup that I think is sort of central to your success and one mystery to me, even though we've been friends for like 25 years. What, how is it that you sort of just made the decision in the middle of your years in college that you were going to sort of transform yourself from a guy who enjoyed the party and was kind of a goof off at Occidental College to kind of becoming an ascetic at Columbia with a much more purposeful view of, I mean, that's an unusual thing as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a discipline. Yeah. I, 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 some of this, I think, uh, is just a kid growing up. And it, it turns out, and I see this in my own daughters, you know, people go at the, their own pace, right? So uh, I don't think that the more serious side of me uh, sprang up overnight. I think it had been building. It just took longer to manifest in me than it might have in some other kids. Uh, this may be an area where uh, the lack of structure during my high school years, because my mom wasn't always around, my grandparents, they're older, they're mm-hmm. not as strict in paying attention. Uh, I'm sort of raising myself. Right. Meant, well, that, that's what strikes me. Yeah, well, what, what it meant was that um, uh, what the, the, the kind of discipline that I see in my daughters developing at 15 or 16 took me till I was 20 or 21 uh, because there wasn't somebody nagging me uh, and giving me some perspective the way Michelle and I are able to give my was it one transformative event no I don't think so it, it was just sort of gradual I, uh, the the two other things that started happening uh, that, that I think are relevant one was I became more socially conscious at Occidental even though I was partying uh, anti-apartheid movement being starting to be interested in social policy and poverty and starting to study civil rights, uh, even if you know, it was through the, the haze of a hangover. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so that starts giving me a sense of what a purposeful life might look like. Um, that becomes tied up with my, uh, my racial identity. Uh, I start thinking about what it means to be not just a man, but a black man in America, and how do you forge dignity and respect in a society that's still 
troubled by, uh, by the question of race. And then my father dies, uh, unexpectedly. Uh, but and that doesn't happen until a little bit later. Mm-hmm. What does start happening is the, the awareness that I don't know him. And, and so I'm not going to get that much direction from him, but I start needing to understand better my genesis, where did I come from. All these things just make me brood a little bit more. And so physically, I remove myself from my old life. I go to New York. And it's true. I, I, I live like a monk for uh, uh, three or four years. Uh, take myself way too seriously. This, there's this huge That's overcom- part of being young, too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, huge overcompensation. I'm humorless and, you know, uh, have one plate and one towel <laughs> and, uh, you know, am fasting on Sundays and, uh, you know, uh, friends start noticing that I'm, I'm begging off going out, you know, at night because I have to, you know, read, uh, you know, Sartre or something, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, so in retrospect, wildly pretentious. And when I read back old journals from that time, because I'm starting to write, mm-hmm. uh, or letters that I've written to you know, girls you're courting or something, they're impenetrable. I mean, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't understand what I'm saying. Right? There's all kinds of references to Foucault and. <laughs> France Fanon and all this stuff and I'm like what what are you talking about but those are cool pickup lines I bet they didn't work I think <laughs> because people were all like wow this guy is just too intense <laughs> he needs to lighten up um, I, I should have tried like hey, you want to go to a movie or yeah you know, those are good too on a picnic or, or get something. or get a dog that always works <laughs> so uh, let me let me return to 2004 you made you know I remember when you wrote this speech in fact when you got the call that you were going to do it you hung up the phone and you said, I know what I want to say. And I said, what do you want to say? You said, I want to tell my story as part of the larger American story. And you did. Right. And it was a very, it was a, uh, just galvanic because people in a country that was riven heard a message about one American community right. in which we have different stories, but we have shared uh, aspirations, values, uh, and, you know, there is no black America, you know. There, I, I remember. Yeah, you know, all that. Yeah, you, you it wrote was, it. It was a pretty so, good speech. It was a good speech. <laughs> uh, and, and you went right out the notion of a red America and a right. blue America. So you know where I'm going here. Yes, I do. Uh, how are how, how how's are that we, worked out for you? Yeah, exactly. The whole hopey changey thing. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're, I mean, you've accomplished an enormous amount here, yeah. and I'm, you know, I mean, I'm pr- I'm so yeah, proud of you. Yeah. Um, but the you know the premise of our campaigns both in 2004 and 2008 were that we could overcome these differences yeah. and and uh, what what happened? Okay. Well, look, a couple of things. Uh, the uh, you're right about that speech. I knew what I was going to write because essentially I had been off Broadway practicing during that Senate race because uh, I had been traveling through not just Chicago, but downstate Illinois. and These old factory towns. Old factory towns. You know, you're in Quad Cities, you're in Cairo, you're in, uh, you know, places that, um, you know, people would have assumed I couldn't connect. But as I've said before, uh, felt actually pretty familiar to me because 
they were my grandparents' culture in many yeah, ways. From Kansas. From yeah. Kansas. Um, and so, so a lot of the lines of that speech in 2004 were really just a, um, uh, a, a pulling together of what I'd been feeling, what I'd been seeing, mm-hmm. the conversations I'd been having. Yeah, you told stories of people and, you met along yeah, the way. Yeah, d- during the course of, of that uh, couple of years. Um, and so we both anticipated that it was, would do well. I, I don't think any of us anticipated the uh, electric uh, impact that it had I did about uh, across five minutes in. <laughs> I could see what was going on yeah, there. Yeah, but, 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 uh, but I... Th- I always viewed that as an aspirational speech, not a perfect description of what is, but a description of our best selves and who we might be. Uh, That the reality of our common cause and how it connected to our best traditions, starting with the Constitution through the fight for abolition, through the civil rights era, the women's movement, yeah, unionization. The, the movement for unionization, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know the, the the image of you know a, a a melting pot army during World War II. Right, right? you got the the Italian guy, and you got the uh, you know the Polish guy, and 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 suddenly they're all becoming one unit fighting fascism. Right? There's always been a mythology around that. There's always been an uglier uh, set of impulses in America, exterminating uh, you know, Native Americans for their lands and slavery and Jim Crow and. And by the way, and resistance to Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, who we both know and love, right. was. Showed me a speech by Henry Cabot Lodge yeah. in 1896, castigating uh, Irish immigrants and Polish exactly. immigrants right. in the same terms that we've heard in this last campaign. Exactly. So, so, so the point was not to bury uh, that ugliness, but to say that uh, there is this trajectory the arc of the moral universe is long, it right. bends towards justice, right. it is a struggle. But there's this thing in us, there's this thing in this country that is good and unifies us and ultimately will win out. That was the speech. Now, I would argue that during the entire eight years that I've been president, uh, that spirit of America has still been there in all sorts of ways. It manifests itself in communities all across the country. We see it in this younger generation that is smarter, more tolerant, more innovative, more creative, uh, more entrepreneurial, would not even think about, uh, you know, discriminating somebody against, for example, because their sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. All those things that I describe, you're seeing in our society, particularly among, you know, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, uh, but, but obviously, there were, there were. But, 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 but what I think uh, we also saw is that um, the, the resistance to that vision of America 
which has always been there, was always powerful, uh, mobilized and asserted itself uh, powerfully. Now, I would argue that in part, very cynically, uh, somebody like a Mitch McConnell or Roger Ailes at Fox News, I think, specifically mobilized uh, a a backlash to this vision in order to accomplish uh, pretty routine commercial or uh, power. Uh, well, let me try something agendas. out on you. My, I mean, my sense is that McConnell, just as a clinical political matter, recognized the power of your yes. message and figured out very quickly. And he's pretty much said this yes. that if if we were to cooperate, yes. it would have meant that he had figured this out. It would have validated this vision, and right. it would have reinforced it, and 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 it would have, um, I think, consolidated itself for a generation or two. Uh, and so uh, Mitch McConnell's insight, uh, which I've, I've said just from a pure tactical yeah, right. perspective, was pretty smart and well executed. The, the degree of discipline that he was able to impose on his caucus uh, was impressive. His insight was that uh, uh, we just have to say no to that. And if we can just throw sand in the gears then at a time of deep economic crisis, when people are really stressed, really worried, uh, were already stressed and worried before the crisis, now are are thinking the the bottom's fallen out uh, of their lives and their home prices are going down, their 401ks are evaporating, they're losing their jobs, that if we just say no, then that will puncture the balloon that all this talk about hope and change and no red state and uh, blue state uh, is, is proven to be a mirage, a fantasy. And if, if, we, can, uh, if we can puncture that vision, then we have a chance to win back seats in the House. And, Which they did. And, and uh, win back seats in the Senate. Uh, and, and, and so I understand what happened politically. Two points I would make, though, David, because obviously uh, in the wake of uh, uh, the election and Trump winning, uh, uh, a lot of people have, have um, suggested that somehow it really was a fantasy. What, what I would argue is, is that the culture actually did shift, that the majority does buy into uh, the notion of uh, a, a, a one America that is tolerant and diverse and uh, open and, uh, and, and, and full of energy and dynamism. And, uh, and the problem is it doesn't always manifest itself in politics, right? Uh, you know, I, I am confident in this vision because I'm confident that if I uh, if I had run again and articulated it I think I could have mobilized a majority of the American people to rally behind it I know that in conversations that I've had with um, people around the country even some people who disagreed with me 
they would say the vision, the direction that you point towards is the right one. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with the president. Well, in fact, there are Trump, as you know, Trump, Obama voters. Right. There were people, she, uh, uh, he won 200 counties that you, uh, right. that you won, and many of them are in these right. more rural or small town right. communities. Do you think... You always had an overarching message, right. and it had an economic component to it, a very yeah. heavy economic component to it. Should this campaign have had that? Look, uh, you know, I think that uh, Hillary Clinton performed wonderfully under really tough circumstances. Uh, I've said this publicly. I'll, I'll repeat it. Uh, I think there was a double standard with her. Um, for whatever reason, there's been a longstanding difficulty in her relationship with the press uh, that meant uh, her flaws were wildly amplified relative to uh, not Let's just not just his, that, but leaving that but, aside. But well, the, the reason I, I bring this up is because uh, we've both been in campaigns. If you think you're winning, then you have a tendency, just like in sports, maybe to play it safer. And uh, the economy has been improving. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a sense, obviously, that some communities have been left behind from the recovery and people feeling anxious about that. But uh, if she was looking at the campaign and saying, okay, uh, I'm winning right now, and her, her economic agenda was, in fact, very progressive, but... But not but well she, understood. But a lot not, of trees, no well, forest. No, you're right. Not well understood. But understandably, uh, I think she looked and said, well, uh, given my opponent and the things he's saying and what he's doing, we should focus on that. In retrospect, we can all be Monday morning quarterbacks. Here's what I, here's what I would say prospectively is that uh, – the democratic agenda is better for all working people. This division that's been put out there between white working class versus black working class or Latino working class, look, an agenda of raising minimum wage, rebuilding our infrastructure, you know, education, education, education. family leave, community colleges, uh, be, uh, making it easier for unions to organize, uh, that, that's an agenda for working-class Americans of all stripes. And we have to talk about it, and we have to be present in every community talking about it. See, I, I think the issue was less that uh, Democrats have somehow abandoned the white working class. I think that's nonsense. Look, the Affordable Care Act benefits a huge number of Trump voters, <laughs> Uh, there are a lot of folks in places like West Virginia, Kentucky, uh, who uh, didn't vote for Hillary, didn't vote for me, but are being helped by this. Right. The, the, the problem is, is that we're not there on the ground communicating not only the dry policy aspects of this, but that we care about these communities, that we're bleeding for these communities, right. that, that, that we understand why they're frustrated uh, there's a, there's, and, and there's the values a, and the values and, the, and there's an emotional connection and, and part of what we have to do to rebuild is to be there 
And, and that means organizing. That means caring about state parties. It means caring about local races, state boards, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or school boards, and, and city councils, and state legislative races. And not thinking that somehow just a, a great set of progressive policies that we present to the New York Times editorial board will win the day. And and but some of, some of that would fall on us. I mean, I take yeah. you and me because uh, yeah. maybe we didn't spend as much time on that project while you were here. I mean, we're trying to save well, the economy yeah, and doing these other yeah, no, things. I, you know, I mean, our well, campaigns did it. But it's interesting. You and I both, I think, would acknowledge that when we were campaigning, we could connect. Once you got to the White House and you were busy governing, then right. partly you're just constrained by time, right? You are then more subject to the filter. And this is, I brought up Fox News, but it was Rush Limbaugh and the mm-hmm. NRA and uh, there are all these mediators who are interpreting what we do. And if we're not actually out there, like we are during campaigns, then folks in, in a lot of these communities, what they're hearing is, Obama wants to take away my guns. Right. Uh, Obama cares about transgender bathrooms and not my job. Uh, Obama uh, uh, is disrespecting uh, my culture and is primarily concerned with uh, coastal elites and, and minorities. And so, so part of what uh, I've struggled with during my presidency and part of what I think I'll be thinking a lot about after pre- my presidency is um, how do we work around all these filters? And it becomes more complicated now that you've got social media where uh, – People are getting news that reinforces their biases and 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 separates people out instead of bringing them together. Uh, it is going to be a challenge. But look, you, you look at what we did in rural communities, for example. Yeah. yeah. Just from a policy perspective. Yeah. Ask Tom Vilsack. Tom, he feels Tom Vilsack, my agriculture yeah. secretary from Iowa. Uh, we, we we devoted more attention, more focus put more resources into rural America than has has been uh, the case probably for the last two, three decades. Right. And and it paid great dividends, but you just wouldn't know that. That's not something that you would see on the nightly news. And so we've got to figure out how do we uh, show people and communicate in a way that is visceral and and makes an emotional yeah. connection as opposed to just the facts because I, I, the facts I, are all in dispute these I think, days. I, I personally think that part of the problem was um, sometimes we become a slave to our own technology and politics. Right. And you say, well, we've got this group, this group, and this group, and so we have the what coalition we need to win. And if you misuse sort that, you send mic- a message yeah. to this everybody else, we don't really need you. Well, part of what I've been saying to, to people, and this was even when I thought – we were going to win was that that, that narrow democratic coalition this, the quote unquote obama coalition that uh if if properly executed y- yes you can probably win presidencies repeatedly it constitutes the majority of the country but you can't govern so 
part of the challenge for Democrats and progressives generally is that if we cannot compete in rural areas, in rural states, if we can't find some way to break through what is a complicated history in the South and start winning races there and winning back Southern white voters without betraying our commitment to uh, civil rights uh, and, and diversity. If we can't do those things, then we can win elections, but we will see the same kinds of patterns that we saw during my presidency, uh, a progressive president, but uh, a gridlocked Congress uh, that can't move an agenda forward. Just a couple more things. Are you worried about the Corbynization of the Democratic Party? You saw the Labor Party sort of disintegrate yeah. in the face of their defeat and move so far left that it's, you know, in a very, in, in a very frail state. And there is an impulse to respond to, to the power of Trump by, you know, being as edgy. Uh, on the left. On the left. I don't worry about that, partly because uh, I think that uh, the Democratic Party has stayed pretty grounded in fact and reality. <laughs> Trump emerged out of a decade, maybe two, in which the Republican Party, because it had to say no for a tactical reasons, moved further and further and further away from what we would consider to be a, a basic consensus around things like climate change mm-hmm. or uh, how the economy works, and uh, started filling up with all kinds of conspiracy theorizing that became kind of common uh, uh, wisdom or conventional wisdom within uh, the Republican Party base. That hasn't happened in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think people like the passion that Bernie brought, but Bernie Sanders is a pretty centrist politician relative to Corbin, relative to Corbin, or relative to some of the Republicans. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, and yes. and so uh, so I, I I don't worry about that. What I do worry about is that uh, in an era where we are looking for simple solutions, uh, that and 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 want a hundred percent of what we want when we want it, uh, that. Uh, we end up um, starting to shut ourselves off from uh, different points of view, shutting down debate, becoming more dogmatic, becoming more brittle. And I don't see that being a successful strategy for us winning over the country. Remember, we won the popular vote. You know, we don't have very good population distribution from a Democratic right. perspective, right? So I, I've told the story about how I was in Brooklyn uh, campaigning, I think, for de Blasio. And uh, this woman comes up, hugs me. How can we help you? We love you. I, I said, move to Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I got, I got a million wasted didn't, votes in, but, in uh, Brooklyn. Well, let me, let me before you uh, go, because uh, you've been real generous with your time here, uh, what about you? You, you know, you, I, I see this conflict coming down the line here, which is 
You, you once told me that you admired the Bushes for the way they've handled their post-presidency in the sense that they gave you the room right. that you needed to do what you needed to do. Uh, and I know you feel strongly about that. On the other hand, people are kind of looking to you now to be kind of the point of the spear and the resistance to uh, this new administration, and and partly because of the absence of anybody else. But uh, Well, I think, I, I, look, um, my, my intentions on January 21st is to sleep, take my wife on a nice vacation and she has said it better be nice because <laughs> uh, she's she's earned it she deserves it she yeah. deserves it um uh, i'm going to start thinking about uh, the first book i i, I want to write I've, I, we've got to unpack uh and and i don't need your help on that either <laughs> um and and look i have to i have to be quiet for a while I, I and I don't mean politically. I mean internally. I, mm-hmm. I have to still myself. And, and that's going to take some time. Yes. I mean, it's hard to leave here. It does. I, I know right? in some small way yeah. what that's like. So, so you just have to uh, you have to uh, get back in tune with your center and and process what's happened before you make a bunch of good decisions. Uh, with respect to uh, my uh, priorities when I leave. Uh, it is to build that next generation of leadership, organizers, journalists, politicians. I see them in America. I see them around the world, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds who are just full of talent, full of idealism. And the question is, how do we link them up? How do we give them the tools for them to bring about progressive change? And I want to use my presidential center as a mechanism for developing that next generation of talent. That's my long-term interest because I don't want to be the guy who's, uh, you know, I, I joke I'm like the old guy at the bar, you know, who's, who's, who's just hanging around reliving old glories. No, the good news is I think everybody will buy you drinks. So. <laughs> it, it's, it, I, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to, to amplify and lift up a next generation of voices, not just in politics, but in civic life. Uh, and I, I, I have the connections and uh, I think credibility to, to be able to do that in, in some unique ways. Um, short term, with respect to the Democratic Party, I think even before I leave here, what I can do is give people some sense of direction. And, and we already started talking about this. I think what I can do is not do it myself, but say to uh, those who are still in the game right now, Look, think about this. Think about how you're organizing that. You know, what, what are you doing uh, to uh, make sure that uh, young talent is, is out there in the field being supported? You know, how are you making sure that your message is reaching everybody and not just mm-hmm. those who have already been converted? Uh, identifying really talented uh, uh, staff and organizers who are already out there and, and, and encouraging them to get involved. So I, I think over the next 45 days, what I can say is, here's how I would do it if I were sticking around, but I'm not sticking around I, by virtue of the Constitution and because I believe in the wisdom that George Washington showed uh, that at a certain point, uh, you make room for 
uh, for new voices and, and fresh legs. Um, now, that doesn't mean that uh, if uh, a year from now or a year and a half from now or two years from now, there is an issue of such moment, such import, that, that isn't just a debate about a particular tax bill or uh, you know, a, a particular policy, uh, but goes to some foundational issues about our democracy that I might not weigh in. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm still a citizen, and, uh, and that carries with it duties and obligations. Uh, but, but the day-to-day scrum, uh, that's uh, not only... Uh, not only is it contrary to tradition for the ex-president to be involved in that, uh, but I also think would inhibit the development of those new voices. And I know they're out there. I've seen them. You, you know them too. It's, it's just, I do. There's a little bit of a generation gap. You know, the, uh, in some ways, you know, we've... Uh, uh, some great young leaders out there. Yeah. It's just that they, they're, they haven't quite... Uh, gotten to prime age yet, and uh, what we want to do is maybe accelerate their presence on the on the scene, and and uh, that's where I can be helpful, shine a spotlight on all the great work that's being done, and all the wonderful uh, uh, young Americans who uh, will will help uh, lead the way in the future. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that I love you, man, and I'm love so back, so grateful. Uh, I told you at the end of the 2012 campaign that you gave me the greatest gift because you helped renew my idealism. Yeah, you were getting a little cynical. Yeah, and uh, and I um, and I think you've done that for a lot of people, and that's the greatest gift you can bestow. So, uh, on behalf of all of us, I appreciate. I want to say thank you and for your wonderful service. It's been a pretty good ride. Great ride. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.